Hello and welcome to the Film Comment Podcast. My name is Violet Luca and I'm the digital editor. The evolution of the Sundance Film Festival from intimate showcase of independent film to a star-studded, multi-million dollar market has been well documented, but it's quite another thing to hear it from some of the people who witnessed the phenomenon firsthand. I'll turn things over to Nicholas Rapold now. All right, hello and welcome to the Film Common Podcast, coming to you live from the Sundance Film Festival at the Kickstarter House. The Kickstarter will be celebrating creators and creators that Kickstarter has worked with all week long. We have an embarrassment of riches when it comes to uh, veterans of the festival here. Um, I think everyone in this room has plenty of stories to tell, and that's kind of my interest here. Uh, I really want to hear what uh, everyone has, has to say about their experiences. So I think we will start off with an introductions. Myself, I'm uh, Nick Rapold. I'm the editor of Film Comet, and uh, you won't hear too much from me if all goes well today. So we'll just proceed uh, to my right. Why don't we start off by saying the first year uh, that you came to Sundance. Just give that, you know, incriminating number. Well, I'm just glad that the person to my right will have a a year that's earlier than mine. But my name is Eugene Hernandez. I'm uh, the deputy director at the Film Society of Lincoln Center, where I work with Nick Rapold and the entire team at Film Comment. I'm one of the co-founders of IndieWire. And uh, my first Sundance was 1993. I came here in 93 as... As a as a as an observer, as a visitor, I was I was very curious about this festival that was releasing or or opening my eyes to all these films that were so meaningful to me in the early '90s. Um, films like Poison or Paris Is Burning, so many movies in the late '80s, early '90s. So I decided just to come check it out, and I've been coming ever since. I'm Ira Deutschman. I guess it's worth saying I've been a marketer, a distributor, a producer, an academic, and a director now. Oh yes, that's right. Well, people don't know about people don't know about that yet. Um, yeah, spoiler alert. And uh, my first year at Sundance was 1984. The only things that I remember really clearly are number one, the fact that the film that won the grand prize that year was. Um, Blood Simple, that's right. And I think the documentary award that year was The Times of Harvey Milk. Uh, And I remember that because uh, they put me up in a condo where the filmmakers from that film were my roommates. And the only other thing I remember from that year was that everybody was skiing all day long. And then there would be a party, and then we would go to one movie, and then we'd go to sleep. And then the next day we'd go skiing all day long. That was what the early days of Sundance were like. I'm Dan Mervish. I'm one of the co-founders of the Slamdance Film Festival, which, uh, so the first time I came to Sundance was the year we started Slamdance, which was 95, uh, which makes me younger. And uh, technically, I've never actually been to Sundance. Um, (laughs) I'm just across the street from Sundance. But it's a wonderful festival. We wouldn't have done Slamdance if it weren't for how great Sundance has been. And uh, so many of our alumni filmmakers have, have then gone on to screen at Sundance, and occasionally I'll sneak a ticket into one of their screenings. But I think I've only been to five screenings at Sundance in 22 years. So I still don't know how to buy tickets here. It's a a mystery (laughs) to me. I'm Leslie Kleinberg. I'm the executive director of the Film Society. Um, Before I was the executive director, I was a documentary filmmaker. So and I came here the first time in 97 with a film. And those days were 
not quite skiing all day, but it was early days. It was pre-Olympics, before a lot of condos were built here. Uh, you know, the housing was just very different. The whole town felt really different, but um, I'm coming back virtually every year since then, but not every single year. Not like Eugene. I don't have the consistency of Eugene or Ira. Maybe I'll just jump on from that. I mean, because one of the things I'm interested in is what the, how the experience is different depending, you know, what capacity you're, you're coming here. So maybe, Leslie, if you can tell a bit how it was different as being a filmmaker then, uh, you know, versus now. You know, we, we came to Sundance with a film called Palmanette, at the Brink of Summer's End, which I made with my friend Monty Bramer, who is a director. And we were really naive in a lot of ways because we just, we just didn't know what to expect. We were just so excited. But in those days, you also had to have a print of your film. And we were very anxious about having the money to pay for a print. Um, but we were fortunate to get HBO, who had helped us with the finishing, to agree to do the print, but only 16. And it was it's shown at the old holiday cinemas, and I call them the old because they were old and disgusting. Bob, <laughs> Bob is agreeing with me. And it was def- different because you felt like you were just in a cinema. It didn't have the feel that I think Sundance has now in terms of a community feeling, in terms of that just the screening experience. But it was screened on 16 in very jerry-rigged sound setup. It was not set up exactly to screen film there. Um, So the first screening was a little hard because it's mono, 16 millimeters mono sound. So our beautiful mix was, we heard it in mono, wasn't quite the impact that it had uh, in this mix, in the mix, for sure. But I think that it's, I have to say it was a very emotional experience for me because we worked for many years to make the film. We were very involved in the queer community in LA, raising money. The film is about a person who was a real hero in the community in LA and was a famous author. So it was a passion project, and so coming here was something that was very important to us as filmmakers. The Sundance part wasn't, like that part didn't sink in. We were just excited that anyone would see the film. And I recall the first screening that we introduced the film, and then at the end there was silence. There was no one said anything, and nobody clapped even. They just were like, Dead, and I was like, oh, this is, this is horrible, this is very bad. And they helped us start the Q&A, and then we realized, oh, people were just greatly affected by the film, and it took them a while to kind of get their bearings, and that was very surprising, I guess. We didn't anticipate to have that kind of reaction, but... So as a filmmaker, it was my first opportunity to be involved with so many other documentary filmmakers and meet people who are still my friends, people that I met there that first year. Uh, I still know. I felt like I was part, for the first time, of a community of documentary filmmakers, a community of queer documentary filmmakers, and just part of a film community. And I always felt that way about coming here. I I really still feel that that, as a filmmaker, and I'm a documentary, I'm not chasing an agent here. I wasn't, those pressures where you might have a pressure to sell your film, but it's not quite the competition 
that I, I saw in what my colleagues who were in narrative uh, went through, with more collegial, not always in the documentary world, but mostly pretty collegial. We're talking about Sundance history. I think one aspect of that, especially in the 90s, uh, and you, you referenced it, is certainly the, the importance of this festival to queer culture, queer media. I guess maybe that's a better word. I mean, I think you could probably speak to that and sort of what that what that stamp of approval, that acceptance meant to the movie. And maybe I'm also looking across the room at Bob Hawke, who could probably also speak to that. Just kind of, if we're talking about Sundance history, one important component of it is the, the role it's played in queer media overall. Well, I think a lot of people talk about new queer cinema and what happened here in the 90s, particularly with narrative film. But in documentary, there was also a a big a transformation in the community when more docs that were by, for, and about LGBTQ folks were being screened here alongside other films. And it was a legitimization of what we were doing and the stories that we were telling. And that, by the way, 97 was the first queer brunch which was in a room the size of this room. And if you know what it's like now, it's, it's the biggest non-Sundance event, I think, still every year. It's like hundreds of people go. So, you know, there's a lot of people who are queer in the industry, and I think that Sundance has actually given them permission to be themselves as artists, but also as people working in the industry. There's just, when you go to Queer Brunch and you see every gay agent and publicist and marketing person and filmmaker and programmer and you know, it's a really f great feeling of community, and I think Sundance has done a terrific job of making us feel a part of a film community and not ghettoized in any kind of way. And that year that I was there, Arthur Dong's film, License to Kill, uh, won the Directing Award, and he won, I think, the Playboy Freedom of Expression Award, which was given at that time. Tina De Feliciano and um, Jane Wagner's film, Girls Like Us, won the Jury Prize, and our film won the Audience Award. So it was a robust year for uh, queer documentaries. I mean, and that, that brings us to, an, to another, another aspect of Sundance, the, the idea of as a film screening as an event, you know, community event where it has this great impact and everyone remembers who was there and, and that, you know, that phenomenon. So I almost want to just go around and talk about what first time they were at a screening where they felt they were at something that's something really special like that. I mean, I don't know for Eugene uh, what, what that might be for you. Because obviously something like that inspired you enough and to feel that this needs to be chronicled in a more organized way. The first movie that comes to mind when you ask, in that, ask the question in that way is really was um, the Robert Rodriguez film in 93, El Mariachi. That was just a really amazing screening at the Prospector. What I found interesting about that year in particular was um, the festival had sort of branded it the year of the 20-something. And John Pearson, who wrote the book Spike, Mike, Slackers, and Dykes, moderated a panel with all these different filmmakers, Robert Rodriguez, Brian Singer, Rob Weiss, Jennifer Lynch, filmmakers who were here for the very first time, were making films for the very first time. And um, it made a big impact on me being in my 20s at the time and just kind of seeing the experience of so many filmmakers from all different walks of life and telling different kinds of stories being embraced and showcased in the way that Sundance could. For, for me and for some of my colleagues, who, people who, I, who became colleagues, uh, I met one of the co-founders of IndieWire on that, in that year riding on a shuttle bus, 
And Mark Rabinowitz and I, and Tim Latore, Sherry Barner, a bunch of us, were really moved by the, the energy that we saw happening, not only at Sundance, but among filmmaking in various parts of the country at that moment. And it really absolutely had an impact on the work that I did for the next uh, 15 to 20 years. I think one of the most pivotal screenings, uh, you, you kind of had a great role, I'm sure, in kind of shaping the understanding and reception of it. If you could talk a bit about Sex, Lies, and Videotape. That was the film I was going to mention in, in any case, only because it's the first time that I ever had a, was at a screening here where it was truly transformative in some way. It's worth mentioning to build up to that, that those years in between what I described as my first year at Sundance and, um, and this particular year, when Sex Lies was shown here, um, there was a slow evolution, you know, where people were actually beginning to do business here and, um, and feel like it was worth being here to screen movies. But there was still no commerce going on here. There, was no, there were no deals being made. There were no, you know, that nobody came here with the expectation that they would buy films. But all through those years, I was working for a distribution company where, at the very least, I was keeping my eye on what was going on in the market, making friends, networking, etc. But that year of Sex Lies was the first time I came to Sundance without portfolio. I had just left Cinecom, which was the company I was working for at the time. And um, I was on a panel, which is the way I ended up getting my trip paid for every year anyway. And the, when I arrived at the airport, they had a volunteer who picked up a bunch of us uh, to drive us into town. And I had developed a habit of always asking the drivers, you know, have you heard any buzz about any films yet? And um, the driver said, well, there's this movie, Sex, Lies, and Videotape, that everybody's talking about. They actually gave a special screening of it for the volunteers. And I said, oh, okay, what, do you know when it's playing? And he said, well, yeah, there's a screening actually at about an hour. And so rather than going to my condo, I actually went directly to the screening from the airport. And it was packed. I was actually sitting on the floor in the back because it was the only seat available. And by the end of the screening, it was clear that this movie, you know, had completely rocked. And at that point, I think it was that evening, there was a, a party, and I approached uh, Larry Estes, who uh, worked for a uh, RCA Columbia Home Video, which at the time was investing in movies, and they were the ones who actually produced Sex, Lies, and Videotape, or you know, financed it. And uh, they were just beginning to figure out what they were going to do distribution-wise with the film. And I just grabbed him and wouldn't let go and told him I want to be part of this movie, and I ended up becoming the producer's rep on the film and working on the marketing of it. So yeah, that was the first time I think that anything really major had happened at Sundance that affected the business. And as you all know, because the legend exists and because it's been written about plenty, starting the next year was when there was the influx of everybody in the business looking for what's the new Sex, Lies, and Videotape. I mean, this seems like an obvious question with an obvious answer, but I'm, I mean, from your perspective, what was the appeal that that film had that other films had not? I mean, is it only from a, a marketing perspective? Obviously, as an independent film, uh, you know, technically and everything, it's very, and artistically, it's significant. But what also made it something that you could, you know, broadcast in some way? It was a crowd pleaser. It was a, it was a movie that um, the audience was cheering at the end of that first screening. Um, and then on top of it, it seemed like there were a lot of angles that one could exploit in the marketplace, just the word sex which is probably why Miramax bought the movie, was just all they wanted to know was the title. 
It also launched approximately a million headlines with some X, Y, and Z, anyway, for the headline perspective. But Dan, I wonder if you could speak what the, the need for, for you know, creating uh, an alternative to, to Sundance. Was it, you know, in reaction to, to you know, a phenomenon like, like this? Well, in... You know, in the mid-90s, we started in 95, and that around that year, and Ira can more educated on all this, but it was around the time that Miramax became part of Disney and Fine Line became part of Warner Brothers and Fox launched Fox Searchlight in 95. And it was sort of the, that was the, the Hollywoodization of, of Sundance was kind of hit a critical mass, I think. And I, I, my own film, I had a film called Omaha the Movie. We had all been influenced by the, kind of that first generation of, of Sundance filmmakers, or second generation, you know, the, the Soderberghs and Rodriguez and, and Linkletters. And um, by then, I think Sundance was starting to take more films by second-time directors and bigger budgets and films with distribution, which were all great films. And we were just talking about Matt Harrison, a Rhythm Thief play that year, great film. But they kind of left behind the niche of the first-time filmmaker, or maybe there were just a lot more of them, you know, at that time. And so we didn't have a place to go. So we had heard of a couple filmmakers the year before, in, in 94, a couple guys out of Colorado University, Trey Parker and Matt Stone, had shown Cannibal the Musical here, which didn't get into Sundance, but they did a little renegade screening. James Marandino had a film called The Upstairs Neighbor, uh, did another little renegade screening. We kind of heard about these guys, and we thought, okay, well, that's a good plan B. But then when so many of us didn't get into Sundance, we're like, okay, why don't we take that idea and, and just team up together and combine resources? So we had a dozen features and a dozen shorts. And, and a lot of us had screened our films in September at the what was then called the IFFM. It's now IFP Film Week. And I, I remember one distributor, good, perfectly good company, coming up to me and saying, oh, I love the film, we'll give you distribution if it gets into Sundance. And it was just very straightforward about it, you know. So if you didn't get into Sundance, you were screwed, you were dead in the water. You wouldn't get distribution, you wouldn't get into other regional festivals, you wouldn't get into international festivals, you wouldn't get agents, producers, you wouldn't get laid, nothing. So it was essential that you go to Park City. Yeah. Yeah, right? Yeah, no, you guys know that. So, um, so we, we, I literally had a fiduciary duty to my investors to, to show up in Park City and, and just make the most of it. And so that's what we did. So we had a dozen f features and shorts. And initially, we looked at the map and we saw, oh, well, Salt Lake City's only an inch away from Park City, so we'll just set up in Salt Lake. It, it, it's, the map was not to scale though. So, uh, no, 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 I know, yeah, who knew? So, uh, so nobody came to our screening. So by the second day of the festival, actually one of your projectionists, Frank Hudek, and uh, his then girlfriend, now ex-wife, uh, Lisa Raven, and, and I, we, we rented a 16 millimeter projector, Leslie was talking about 16, in Salt Lake City. We, we hauled ass up the mountain, and it was a blizzard, and the, and the screen was sticking out the window, so snow was hitting me in the face the whole drive up. And we rented a room at the Prospector, because the night clerk, he didn't care about Sundance, he was just renting rooms out. And that, at the time, was one of the main venues for Sundance. So we rented a room 30 feet down the hall from Sundance's main venue, and the next morning we were screening 16 millimeter films you know, 15 minutes after every uh, Sundance screening. And then we found a guy who had, a couple days later, we found a guy with a 16 millimeter, a 35 millimeter projector screening his own film, his own short film at the Yarrow Theater. And he's like, oh, is it too late to get into Slamdance? And we're like, 
you have a 35 millimeter projector, welcome aboard, you're part of the <laughs> festival. And we just took over his operation. And then, so we were in Park City, and there was nothing much anyone could do about it. But by then, we, we, you know, we were always shameless self-promoters, so we'd got, you know, the New York Times called us Cheerful Subversives, which is now the name of my book, by the way. Cheerful Subversives Guide to Independent Filmmaking, available now. And um, so anyway, but we, so we were sort of the darlings of the press, which was great, because they were all kind of turning on Sundance. But anyway, so, it, and we We've, we've had our own experiences. Um, I mean, Soderbergh is part of our history, too. The second year, he brought, as a producer, he brought uh, the Day Trippers here, and, and we were set up at the Yarrow, and we had crappy projectors, and they were, um, you know, during the screening, they kept going out, and the sound was going out, and so he and I were fixing the projector during the screening, and he kept getting electrocuted. We almost killed him that day. And, uh, but at the end of the screening, he got up and announced that he would, out of his own money, you know, help us get projectors for the next year and subsequent years. And that was, that, you know, it was a meaningful you know, and memorable you know, moment for us. That was 96. And then the next year, he came back and showed Schizopolis, uh, which is a film he directed. And, then that, and it was at that festival that he met the Russo brothers, who then was like, oh, guys, come out to Hollywood. And now they you know, own Marvel, basically. You know. So that brings us up to 97 or so. Uh, I mean, what was the next phase for Sundance? Because I know it feels somewhat cyclical sometimes, how, how people feel it's representing filmmakers versus the market. Eugene, if you can sort of speak to the next phase in its, in its evolution. I think that Dan put it well. Uh, that mid-90s moment, that Hollywoodization of independent film was so striking, and it was, it was influencing a lot of how independent films, how American independent, independent films were being referenced by the media, how they were being accepted by audiences. I felt like um, whether it was the, the work that Ira was doing at Fine Line or the work that Harvey Weinstein was doing at Miramax, and there certainly was a number of other companies you referenced, Fox Searchlight, and we could certainly talk about uh, the Sony guys. Um, and I would be curious to hear from Ira on this, but from, a, from more of a consumer and journalist perspective in the mid-90s, it felt like there was an attempt to make American independent film as a brand, to make that a, a hook for people, to use that as an angle. And I don't know whether, I don't, I don't know to what extent it worked looking back now, but I really felt it as an audience member and as a journalist that that was something that distributors and marketers were trying to, um, were trying to really rally around. And maybe that was, because you could see what was happening, say, in the music business, and you know, like the Seattle music scene became a, you know, a moniker, a brand, a way to, to give an audience a hook into something. I don't know if it really worked for independent film over the long term, but I, I certainly... No, it worked too well. When I look at the phases of Sundance, it's hard to get beyond the fact that it's defined for me by who I was working with at the time, or you know, whatever, so I see the, the breaks a little bit differently. But one thing to correct is that the fine line years were actually over by 1995 when you, when you were talking about it. Over, it was, finished, done. Well, I yeah. was gone, so it was over. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. The, uh, it was December of 1989 that fine line was formed. So it was Sundance of 1980 was our first time here uh, looking for movies. 90. 90, sorry, yeah, yeah. I get really confused. And because I was an early Sundance attendee, I had a leg up on almost all the other distributors because I already knew how to navigate it. I already knew all the people who were running the places. I, you know, it, it was much easier for me than I think people who were diving into the market at that time. And it was before the frenzy that you were talking about. So 
we had a really good run during that time in terms of acquiring films here and you know doing pretty incredible things. But then came that moment that you're talking about where it just got nuts. And that lasted for a while. And I would say that it hit the peak in the early 2000s, mm -hmm. which was when all of a sudden the, in the first dot-com era, the one that went bust, every sponsor wanted to be here. Every one of the agencies wanted to be here. It was, that was when the, the, the chaos here was at its peak. And uh, fortunately, I, maybe it was because of the dot-com bust, but fortunately it's scaled back now. I mean, it's not anywhere near as bad as it used to be. I think that the town adjusted a lot. The Olympics helped because they created a lot of infrastructure that didn't exist before. It's worth noting, and Jeff, you remember this, the early days here, there was not a single traffic light in this town. The kind of housing that was available was what, like one one-hundredth of what's available now. It's, you know, there was nothing but empty space. So it's really been a, an enormous evolution. I was on the jury here in 2003, and there's a lot that you can know about Sundance encompassed in just the word Benifer. And when Ben Affleck and Jennifer Lopez came to Sundance without a movie, just to come to hang out, I remember being in the deliberation room on, on Main Street and Jeff Gilmore coming up, practically with smoke coming out of his ears, that Main Street had been closed for the first time. And it was just because she had arrived in some big car. I mean, it was just the begin for me anyway, I saw that that was a, a turning point in the city because sponsors were working outside of the festival. Uh, they were you know, buying up storefronts and the lift gifting suites, and it was out of control. Paris Hilton, I was going to mention her too. Yeah. Well, it's, it's worth noting that as I think as I was alluded, some of that has died down somewhat, but it was in real um, con you know, contrast to what the festival was trying to do and in competition, actually, with what they were doing and for the attention of filmmakers and actors and other folks who were being brought to gifting suites instead of doing other things as part of community building here. Bob Hawk film consultant, occasional producer, etc. And I first came in 87. Anyway, Redford himself put his foot down and he worked with the city and he was instrumental on preventing all these companies and celebrities without a film. And he kind of put a kibosh on uh, downtown Main Street, I don't know, they might have bought up all the condos down there. After a while, the looky-loos were no longer here because there was no place. But I, I know Redford had a big hand in that because he couldn't stand it. I realized I didn't answer Eugene's question from before about, about the branding of independent film. There literally was a meeting here, and I believe it would have been in the early 90s, and Jeff, I'm pretty sure you were in the room, but where Sundance called a meeting of all the distributors, publicists, and other professionals who were here at the festival to talk about what could we do about trying to get more attention for independent film. 
and there was a publicist in the room who shall remain nameless who gave a, stood up and gave a, gave a big speech about the branding of independent film and how he used it as an example at that time the milk industry, the dairy industry, had gotten together and done commercials pushing milk, you remember with the milk mustaches and the got milk, yeah. And he was suggesting that we all band together and do a big campaign to promote independent film. And part of, part of what he was after was that he was saying that we were marginalizing independent film by uh, not showing it in the local multiplexes and not taking out TV ads and all that kind of stuff. And the only thing I can say, and I think back about this years later, and it's the reason why if I ever wrote a book about that whole period, I would call it Be Careful What You Wish For, because in a, in a way that is what happened, which I refer to as the mirror maxization of the independent film business, overspending, overreaching, you know, essentially taking movies that could have been successes and making them into failures by spending too much and being too ambitious about what kind of an audience they were, they were going for. And so I'm, I'm actually pretty happy about the fact that there's this been scaling down where people are focusing on you know, specific niche audiences again and trying and going back to the art houses, which is where they belong to begin with, you know, screw putting the, into multiplexes where they don't give a shit about independent film and all they're doing is filling screens that they can't, that you know, they have nothing else to put in it. So, so yeah, I mean, there was that moment where independent film became a thing and we're better off not having it be a thing. I'm just curious, what were some of the movies that you felt were kind of inflated until they burst? I don't know if anybody else um, has examples they want to, but I'm actually gonna pick on a studio movie which has a connection to Sundance because it was directed by Redford, and that's Quiz Show, a movie that was a, a wonderful movie that deserved the audience that it got but because it was released as a major studio movie and released broadly, it's commonly considered to be a failure. And if it had been released as the kind of modest movie that it actually was, would be considered a huge success. I'm looking across the room at Jeff Dowd, and I'm curious uh, when your first year was and, and how you respond to some yeah. of these. The starting point of Sundance in one sense was this, for every one of us, and you know this too, Bob, and others do, we were seeing a lot of movies that almost worked but didn't quite work. And our thought was, one of the eight or nine founders was George White from Eugene O'Neill Center, Yale and New Haven. What if we could do with movies what they were doing with that? Put them on their feet, get some actors like Morgan Freeman and Eddie Almost and Chris Gaston, and all those kind of people, and we'll, that's what we'll do. Okay, and we'll put them on their feet because we said to people, don't listen to your fucking friends who say to you, just go out and make it, don't let anybody stop you. It won't be a calling card, it'll be the end of your career. If you start showing a movie that doesn't work, which has six or seven windows of vulnerability, you're gonna go with your next movie to Meryl Streep, she's gonna say, wait a second, you blew it in the third act there, why, why, you want me to be in your movie? So that was the notion. Don't shoot right away, let us resource people, the Walter Salt, Alvin Sargent, the world, Sidney Pollock, et cetera, all the filmmakers, well, and that was the Institute. And then about three or four years later, we took over, it was the United States Film Festival, and that became the Film Festival. I do want to agree yes. with Jeff about one important point, which is that, the, um, which is that uh, if you strip everything else away it's, and you really focus on the movies, there still is an enormous amount of excitement about what can be discovered at this place. And, you know, I mean, the rest of it is pretty superficial. Um, 
you know, the, 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 the curation of the programs has been consistently great over the years. And while they can't make the movies, so they can't control exactly what's going to come in, and people always, I mean, you know this from the Film Society as well, that you can only react to what's available in any given year. So, you know, it's not like Sundance said, let's go out and make a bunch of gay movies and, and you know, make that into a thing. It was just that that was happening and they recognized it. And that, ha you know, that, that still happens to this day. I mean, look, I saw the Gore movie last night. I managed to get into it. It is so great. I was crying at the end. It's, you know, it's another one of those moments where, and I think that movie's going to have a really big impact. Just to echo what I was saying is that, you know, many of us come back year after year. Before I was at the Film Society, I was a documentary filmmaker, and I had films here, but there was a certain point when I decided to come even when I didn't have a film because I felt that it was so important to be connected to people who were in the same community, and particularly for me in documentary, people work together a lot, they work on each other's projects, and my memories of Sundance are more about the first screening of a documentary, first public screening of documentaries, like Waiting for Sugarman, the other Rodriguez coming in, you know, at the end, and people just going crazy that this person that we've, whose life we've just seen on the screen comes on, or Invisible War, or three minute, three and a half minutes, or I can think of... That screen, like Kenny Turan, about 10 distributors, about a whole bunch of media people. And we walked out and said, whatever happens, we're all going to work on this film. And we're going to help that film. He grabbed it, but everybody helped that film, right? I mean, in one way or another. So that was like a group thing. Here's a film we all got to work on together. Threw away the business side. He did the business really well. Yeah, and I have to say that it's an, you know, you were looking for examples earlier of the difference between, you know, trying to, to sell a movie to its logical audience rather than trying to blow it out wide. And I think that one of the reasons why I ended up getting that movie, in spite of the fact that there were a lot of distributors that were after it, was because I actually did, in my head, have a marketing plan as to how to get that film to its intended audience. There were a lot of people who went in that room and were pitching, oh, we're gonna be in thousands of theaters, and it's like, you know, come on, let's get real. You know, movie's three hours long, it's, you know, about people of color, I mean, come on. But, uh, but anyway, yeah, it's, uh, uh, it's, a, it's a great example of the Sundance phenomenon because that film would never have created the excitement that it had without that screening here. Virtually everything that every person has said here, I can say something. I introduced the world premiere of Hoop Dreams. I will add that there was an advisory selection committee from 87 to 98. Tony Safford was in charge, and they were scrambling to find enough good, uh, enough films to show, let alone good films. So he formed an advisory selection committee. I was at the Film Arts Foundation in San Francisco, so I had my fingers on the pulse. Larry Kardish at MoMA, Karen Cooper, Film Forum, John Pearson, Mitch Block, Ruby Rich, a whole lot. And there weren't that many programmers, and they didn't have enough to introduce the films. So I used to introduced a lot of films at the shitty old Holiday Village. <laughs> and I just want to say that I introduced the world premiere of El Mariachi and Swoon and Hoop Dreams, and I'll never forget because there were three 
filmmakers. So I had to have in my head their names and the pronunciation and all that. And they were nervous as hell. They were all so worried because it was three hours long. And they weren't secure in there. And I'll never forget not only the Q&A, but as people poured out of that theater, they said, well, that didn't feel like three hours. You know, oh, I've, I've seen the baptism of a lot of films. And one other thing, Leslie, you talked about the end of your film and there was silence. I introduced three out of the four screenings of Silver Lake Life, which the, the, the original filmmaker died on screen. And then it was edited by Peter Friedman, who was his student. Someone died on screen of AIDS. You saw a dead person. And after that film was over, I learned after the first screening, I had to have an icebreaker. I had to kind of ease the audience into it. So, and I could say things about Fine Line. After Ira left, when Fine Line died, and I was a producer of a film in which they overspent, I could have made lots of money on that film, Trick. It was so poorly handled. So it will always be in the red, but I'm glad the actors are still getting little checks. And the gay thing, the queer thing, what was not mentioned was that a seminal panel on queer cinema yeah. happened I was here. there. Yeah, that was, it was amazing. Ruby Rich, I believe, was moderator. Christine Vachon, Tom Kalen, Todd Haynes, and Sadie Benning, who <laughs> Redford or someone had decided to knock off video out of the United States Film and Video Film Festival. So there was no video shown at Sundance. Anyway, what, was, wasn't Derek Jarman on that but, as well? Huh? Wasn't Derek Jarman on that panel too? Yeah. Yes, actually, yeah. 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 Oh yeah. my God, that was so long yeah. ago. I was, I was ah. distributing two of those movies, Swoon oh, yeah. and, and um, Edward, yeah. Edward II. Sadie Benning, who only made pixel videos, was on that panel, and for the first time since the Sundance Film Festival or, or the Sundance Institute Redford took over the festival, video was shown only at that panel. Until you know later on, later years, it was the only video. No, it's yeah, it's another another chapter in, in history that continues to be written uh, this year with another edition of the festival. Um, I want I want to since this is part of a film comment podcast, I want to end it in the kind of traditional way since we're right at the end of our time. We we usually ask participants to uh, talk about the most recent film they saw. But since we're just getting started, I thought I'd just go around, and if you could talk about the Sundance film that's forgotten that you want people to remember now. So something, dig deep and see if you can, uh, you know, bring back a, a title that uh, people should, you know, have a moment for <laughs> that, that wasn't fortunate, maybe didn't even get distributed, something like that. Yeah, we're playing the Jeopardy music now. Okay, so. and <laughs> I remember the first one was an obscure Tunisian coming-of-age film 
and it should remain obscure. That's, yeah, that was about it. Nothing pops into my head. Um, I'm sure that there were some. I'd have to look at the lists, you know, but, uh, but no. The problem with forgotten movies is that they're forgotten. All right, well, let that be a lesson to, <laughs> to all of us. Oh, Eugene. The film that they're showing here, it's not that it's the forgotten. There's a film they're showing here that I was fortunate to be involved in called Desert Hearts uh, that Donna Deitch did, and that's going to be showing here in um, sometime like tomorrow or the next day or yeah, something like that worth seeing and boy do I have some funny stories about that but that's another story yeah this, the, here, here's one that is not it's not maybe exactly what you're asking for because it actually did get a distribution deal but it flopped miserably the year that Sex Lies and Videotape created the sensation here most people think that it won the grand prize but it didn't it won the audience prize but it didn't win the grand prize the movie that won the grand prize was Nancy Savoka's film True Love yeah. and there's a movie that's forgotten yeah, yeah. So the movie I thought of, and Bob will back me up if I get any aspect of this wrong, but it's a 1998 film that played here, directed by Julian Goldberger. It's a movie called Trans. Trans! Tiny movie that had such a small, um, had a small long-term life, or small life beyond the festival, but to me introduced, uh, did what Sundance does so well, and it introduced a new filmmaker whose work I just immediately wanted to follow and wanted to find out yes. more about. He had a movie here a bunch of years later that Ted Hope produced called Hawk is Dying. Yeah. Uh, and I'm not even sure what else he's done. I stayed in touch with him for a period of time. His brother did the music. Terrific Sundance discovery that I think should be on some platform somewhere that someone should go watch, trans. Rebecca Miller's first film, not the one with Daniel Day-Lewis, but that wonderful actress, and I can't remember the title or her name, but it was a, a woman's name, I think. A, a, Thompson was the actress's name, something Thompson. Was, wasn't it one of those indigent movies the, the, where it was made for like $200,000 on digital video? It was, or? it was not distributed until... Uh, oh, that was her second film? Okay. Uh, uh, Rebecca Miller made her second film with Daniel Day-Lewis, her, her husband, and Anton Yelchin was in it. And I forget the title of that, too. But Rebecca Miller, her first film, which never got distribution until her, her second film, years later, that film haunts me to this day. There are certain images, but I can't remember the title. We'll, we'll fix it in post. <laughs> All right. Well, that... That 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 uh, that <laughs> that brings us to the end of our first film comment podcast at the Kickstarter House at the Sundance Film Festival. Deep thank you to all of our participants and audience, and to Kickstarter. You've been listening to the Film Comment Podcast, produced by Violet Luca and Nicholas Rapold, and edited by Michael Odmark. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Play. Film Comment is a bi-monthly magazine published by the Film Society of Lincoln Center. Since 1962, Film Comment has featured in-depth reviews, critical analysis, and feature coverage of mainstream, art house, and avant-garde filmmaking from around the world. Visit us online at filmcomment.com subscribe to purchase a digital or print subscription to the magazine. Film Comment, at the heart of film culture for over 50 years.